this is an international and a national uh, webinar uh, uh, offered by the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations. I happen to be its founding uh, president and chief executive officer. We were established in uh, 1983. That's uh, 37 years ago and counting. And throughout the existence of the National Council, we've been seized with the educational mission of trying to inform uh, Americans, increase their knowledge, their insight, their understanding, their capacity for critical analysis, estimates and assessments, and to uh, weigh uh, how things are going uh, backward, forward, or static uh, in this most uh, dynamic uh, corner of the planet. Uh, and this is no marginal uh, matter, uh, ladies and gentlemen. If you just ponder the fact that nowhere else on the planet has the United States uh, been engaged in armed conflict in the last uh, three and a half de decades more. Uh, three additional, three separate uh, international armed conflicts that have put the United States to the test, as it has America's allies, America's friends, America's strategic partners, uh, east, west, north, and south. And for any who think that this region is declining in its importance, and you can make that case from whatever perspective you choose, uh, because uh, Asia is indeed rising and there is increased focus on China and uh, South Asia, Southeast Asia, in addition to uh, Russia and uh, the European Union. There are those who would say, oh no, because America has become more self-reliant in hydrocarbon fuels. And this does not take into consideration that Asia is far from being self-reliant on uh, uh, fuels. And this region uh, sets, the, sets the price of this internationally finite, depletable uh, commodity and every day's international financial uh, transactions. And so uh, we're speaking about uh, an area that uh, is contentious, uh, both in terms of Iran, which is one of the eight states in the Gulf, the other seven are, are Arab, and the relationship between them uh, and whether it's going forward or backward. And we have to ask ourselves with a new administration in the United States, uh, in which direction are we going? Are we going forward or backward? When people say, well, we must immediately rejoin the JCPOA, um, that uh, agreement uh, is one that, that took 12 years uh, to bring it to being. And we were the only one to jettison it. And you can argue that we were the most important player uh, in terms of in influence and power and, uh, uh, and positions and policies and actions and attitudes uh, on the issues that brought about that agreement. Uh, but it was flawed from the beginning and not just for the reasons that you read in the international media about missiles and behavior. Uh, the uh, seven uh, Arab countries were not part of the negotiations. Uh, a greater example of uh, absence of empathy uh, would be harder to imagine. If one just tries to think that if China or, or Russia uh, were trying to uh, enter into a, a bold, far-reaching strategic agreement with Canada or Mexico, uh, but the United States was not allowed to be privy to the uh, negotiations, we would go through the roof 
it, it wouldn't work. And this is what uh, hurt uh, uh, the, the agreement from the beginning, uh, a lack of trust, a lack of empathy, a lack of con consideration, a lack of sensitivity and sympathy for the needs, legitimate needs of the GCC countries and Iraq and the legitimate concerns of these countries and Iraq and the legitimate interests and foreign policy objectives of, of these countries. And so uh, we have a lot to focus on in terms of which way we're going and how we're going to go about it. You also have the so-called Abraham Accords uh, that have come about that have uh, changed the relationships between the United Arab Emirates and uh, Israel and between Bahrain and Israel, not to mention Morocco and Sudan. Uh, but the circumstances in which these accords came into uh, being uh, beg the question uh, of uh, do they have legs? Uh, will they fly in the domestic constituencies of all of these countries, each of which realizes that the unresolved Palestinian problem question issue is the single greatest stumbling block between a strengthened, improved, and expanded relationships between the United States and the 22 Arab countries, the 28 Middle Eastern countries, and the 57 members of the Organization of the Islamic Conference. These are but a few of the uh, issues and challenges and questions and uncertainties that will be addressed by the uh, assemblage of specialists that we have gathered for you today. Uh, these three uh, who will be moderated uh, by Joshua Yaffe, uh, National Council International Fellow, and nine years with the Department of State's Bureau of Intelligence and Research, focusing exclusively on this region, Arabia and the Gulf, uh, need hardly any introduction. They're seasoned veterans, uh, you, uh, that their credentials are, are unchallenged. Uh, I turn the floor over to uh, Josh Yaffe, uh, to moderate this session and uh, looking forward uh, to what we always like to think of as a cerebral massage. Thank you and Josh. Thank you so much, Dr. Anthony. I really appreciate it. Uh, I want to give a special thanks to the National Council on U.S. Arab Relations. Uh, I've been a scholar in residence with the National Council uh, for the last year. Uh, while I worked on completing my PhD and it's, it's uh, something that meant a lot to me because when I first came back to Washington, D.C. in 2005, when I came back home and I started this career, uh, the National Council was the place to go for Gulf studies. If you wanted to talk the Gulf and, and the, the Arab Gulf in particular, then the conferences the National Council ran and the, the annual policymakers forum was the place to go to see and be seen and to, to meet people and to find out what's going on. Because back in those days, you didn't have a lot of the, the Gulf and the, uh, the Arab, Arab uh, Gulf uh, presence in Washington that you have now in terms of the think tanks and the academic outreach that goes on. Today, there's all sorts of activities and institutions that, that uh, cover these types of issues. But for many, many years, for decades, the National Council was, was the only uh, place in town you could really go to do these things. And when I started uh, at the, uh, as an expert on the Arabian Peninsula at State Department back in 2009, uh, about uh, a little over uh, 11 years ago now. Um, uh, I was very privileged, I was very honored that the National Council and Dr. Anthony invited me to come speak at their forums. And that was uh, the first, the first uh, chances that I had to stretch my legs and to experience the wider world of think tank 
uh, um, punditry, as it were. So I'm very grateful. I'm, I'm very pleased to be able to be here and to, to represent the council. And uh, I want to give a special thanks to them for hosting me for this last year while I worked in my PhD research. That being said, our speakers today, I want to introduce them and we'll go in this order if we can. Uh, first will be Dr. Mohammed Asunami, the founder and chairman of Rasana, the International Institute for Iranian Studies based in Riyadh. He is also the editor-in-chief of the peer-reviewed quarterly, the Journal for Iranian Studies, and assistant professor of Iranian studies at Umalkura University with a PhD from Leiden University. He's the author of the books, Iran's Supreme Leadership, Usurped Power, and, uh, the, Arab and uh, the Arab Other and Modern Iranian Mentality. Our second speaker today, uh, Norm Rule has had a 34-year career in the U.S. intelligence community, serving as a manager for a number of Middle East issues. He finished his career overseeing Iran issues at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, and today he's a business consultant and a senior advisor to a number of groups, including United Against Iran, the Counter-Extremism Project, and the Nuclear Threat Initiative. And our last speaker will be Dave DeRoche. Uh, Dave is Associate Professor at the Near East South Asia Center for Strategic Studies at the National Defense University, uh, having previously served in the Office of the Secretary of Defense for Policy in such roles as Director for the Gulf Liaison to DHS, Senior Country Director for Pakistan, and so forth. It's a long list of, of government uh, positions that Dave has held successfully over the years. Uh, he retired from active duty after 30 years as an Army Ranger, and he has degrees from SOAS, King's College of London, the Army War College, and the U.S. Military Academy. With that, I'd first like to turn it over to Dr. Dr. Muhammad Asunami. Uh, Dr. Asunami, do you have remarks that you'd like to present? Uh, Assalamu alaikum, good afternoon, good morning, Washington time and good afternoon of the region time. And, and thank you for, for, for inviting me. Thank you, Dr. Anthony, and for the National Council on Arab, US Arab Relations. Uh, I will try to be very brief uh, and I will talk about a uh, few points. I will talk about the US GCC relationships, US Iran relations and the GCPOA and its aftermath. And how does, uh, how do GCC country look towards Iran? And I will try to conclude with some suggestions and remarks. So it is, uh, we are in maybe have like five, 10 minutes. I will try to, to, to be very, very brief and uh, in a tweet format, I would say. So the relationship between the United States and GCC country is strategic and both sides understand the importance of collaboration despite the differences in positions between uh, them in relation to uh, several affairs. So the, the success of the Demo both democratic and republican administrations have continued uh, with uh, strategic relations despite some variations reflecting their positions and foreign policies uh, differences. On, uh, on Obama administration, uh, Obama, the Obama administration, I would say, signaled to some extent an exceptional period in the history of the relationship between the two sides. And Trump administration was exceptional too, but uh, on the opposite side. Therefore, with Biden administration, we hope that uh, the relationship between the two sides will go back to normality in quarter quarter. Uh, since 2016, many developments in the region have happened at both domestic and regional uh, levels. These developments will contribute for sure and largely to encouraging Biden administration to view the region in a slightly different way compared to Obama's team. 
some of the developments include, uh, and some of them were mentioned by uh, Professor uh, John, uh, the Abraham Accords, the new diplomatic ties and relation between Israel and some GCC and Arab countries, and the social and political uh, reforms taking place in the region since 2015. <clears throat> the Iranian issue, it, it was believed that signing a nuclear deal with Iran would contribute to or force Iran to change its behavior in the region. However, what we uh, what happened between 2015 and 2018 proves that, that this belief to be completely wrong. For example, Iran used its unfrozen money uh, to improve, uh, uh, sorry, to uh, uh, to uh, to uh, support militias in the region and not to improve the Iranian social economic condition or fight in employment, uh, inflation, uh, and uh, the economic problems Iran has been facing. Uh, and, and instead of, uh, of using this money in the country, they sent it to militias uh, and proxies in Yemen, Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, and other places. Uh, so, and uh, according to a, a poll was uh, uh, carried out in Iran, 75 uh, percent of Iranian who participate in the poll uh, saying that nothing has changed in their life living standing after uh, the, the nuclear deal was signed and that was taking place uh, the, the poll uh, was carried out in 2017 so during two years nothing has changed uh, it has been proven that no crucial differences exist between the so-called reformist and hardliner governments in Iran Rouhani's era is much worse, in my belief, than Ahmadinejad's when, when it comes to Iran uh, regional behavior and its relation with the region. And it was wrong for the US, in my belief, uh, for US government to think that supporting Rouhani or what's so called uh, the reformist camp would eventually lead to the hardliners fading in Iran. Indeed, it was Rouhani who said for the first time, if Iran, and I quote him, uh, if Iran is not allowed to sell its oil, no drop of oil will be allowed to leave the region. And you know what happened in, in uh, the attacks against oil ships and, and, and uh, Aramco facilities and other places in the region during, since 2018 uh, until uh, just Riyadh was attacked yesterday with some uh, uh, Iranian missiles, which was carried out by the Houthis. And on Zarif, who has been suggesting the dialogue with the regional countries, he himself said just recently in an interview with Iranian, an Iranian newspaper that he was in a very close work and coordination uh, with Qasem Soleimani, who was the commander of Quds forces, who was killed by American attack in, in January 2020 in different regional development, including Syrian, Yemeni, and Iraqi uh, files. So, what is the difference between Qasem Soleimani on one side and Zarif and or Rouhani government on the other side? There is no difference, in my opinion. So it is an unfallid argument to think uh, if governments in Iran is a reformist or moderate, it's better to work with them. They both uh, apply same strategy or policy coming down from the uh, superior leader, uh, Ali Rouha, uh, Khamenei. It's also proven that it was a huge mistake by the 
P5 plus one to ignore the concerns of regional countries during the nuclear negotiation, even though these countries are impacted the most by Iranian proxies and Tehran destabilizing policy across the region. We know that every country tries to, to look after its own interest or priority and explore investment opportunities in Iran as well. Uh, and some people, uh, some leaders wanted to, to leave a personal legacy like Obama, for example, but this is and that is underst completely understandable and fair, but at the same time, it is not acceptable in my belief to be at the expense of those not included in the nuclear negotiation. Iran's nuclear issue was most likely the key priority for Obama administration to some extent, maybe to, to the European, although maybe the blast missile is more important for them, but for sure it is not the priority, although it's the nuclear file is very important, but it is not the priority for regional countries. The priority for many of the regional countries is to confront the Iranian uh, uh, behavior and the Iranian militias uh, and proxies in the region, what we see in our daily basis details. So that's, we have to look after, I mean, these three files together and they will come to that later on. Uh, so uh, uh, some people would ask, are GCC countries ready to open a window to start negotiation with Iran? And that's a, absolutely a valid question. And my personal understanding is that these countries are not adverse from doing this. However, whatever initiative they undertake, will be built on their previous experience in dealing with Iran. They will not serve trust deficit, which needs to be uh, bridged with Iran. It seems noticeably clear that Iran wants to start talks for tactical and not for strategic reasons. And that this is uh, related to the Iranian regime strategy to, toward the region and its expansionist ideology, which drives, and that is very important in my opinion, which drives Tehran's foreign policy. It is the ideology that drives the policy uh, toward the regional countries. To conclude, uh, and that's maybe some of the suggestions I want to just present, uh, uh, what is the way out of this dilemma? The US administration should not completely uproot the previous administration's policy toward Iran, but should be on, uh, but should build on it to force Iran to return to the table of negotiations. It would be a repeated mistake, in my opinion, to separate the three files. And I mentioned the nuclear issue, the plastic missile program, and Iranian behavior in the region from each other. Uh, from each other, these three files should go in hand in hand with one another, and any relaxation in the uh, sanctions should be linked to the position of positive developments in the negotiations. So not to lift the sanctions and then wait for better development or, or, or uh, uh, negotiation with the Iranians. They should be linked together. Uh, and regional countries, especially GCC countries, are on the front line with Iran and impacted the most by Iran's destabilizing policy. And therefore, they should be at the table uh, should be at the table uh, when negotiations uh, resumed with Iran. Uh, and that is, uh, these are my, I mean, just brief uh, uh, comments or, or 
contributions to, 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 to the discussions and look forward to, to more questions and, uh, or discussion after the other speakers. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Dr. Salami. We really appreciate it. I'd like to turn it over to Norm Rule and get your thoughts. Norm? Good morning. And I'd like to begin by thanking Dr. Anthony and the National Council for U.S. Uh, Arab Relations for this opportunity to join a really impressive panel. Um, uh, the other speakers have quite a quite a pedigree of, of, of great work that they've put out. And um, I encourage everyone to follow them closely, as well as Joshua, with whom I've worked in the, in the government. I'd like to approach my comments uh, from a different perspective. I'd like to talk about how the Biden administration is arriving and what they're going to deal with uh, as they develop a, a, a strategic policy. Coming into um, the administration, uh, the Biden team was quite clear. The region will not have the same priority it did as in the past. Uh, but it will be managed in or addressed in large part, at the very least, through a series of greater priorities. And that would include climate change, pandemic, conflict avoidance, uh, China, uh, new technologies. Uh, there are some opportunities in that, but it also means that the region itself may suffer from some, some attention. Uh, the Biden administration hopes to avoid being drawn into what are uh, what has historically been energy-consuming diplomatic and military um, uh, uh, events and, and dynamics that, frankly, just have an opportunity cost on all these bigger issues. The Biden team will certainly attempt to approach everything multilaterally, uh, which is good news if you're in the GCC, because if the definition of multilateralism includes uh, the states of the Gulf Cooperation Council, Israel, Jordan, uh, and others, that's a positive issue. Uh, the challenge is going to be to bring Europe into a dynamic where uh, it considers coercive measures and uh, uh, some sort of pressure against Iran and its proxies uh, in the region. Overall, the Biden administration will also try to appear more balanced. And I think you're going to see that play out mo most in the uh, Israeli-Palestinian issue, but you will likely see that in uh, other areas, uh, which may be problematic for regional um, uh, leadership, such as the regarding the Houthis or Iran or or or, or Hamas or some of the parties in um, in, in Iraq. Uh, the in, in in the new team as it comes in, I believe most uh, positively will bring a, a more stable, uh, a, a more process-oriented, a less transactional. Uh, pro, uh, uh, policy development. And that's a good thing because allies and adversaries will be able to predict and partners will be able to predict how policy will, will move forward. Uh, Washington players who have arrived in the scene all know the region quite well. And indeed, the reverse is also true for good or bad, is depending on one's perspective. The region knows all of these players having dealt with them on issues ranging from Iran, ISIS, uh, other issues uh, uh, in the past. So there's a, there's a good understanding of who sits on the, si on the other side of each table. The, re the administration is also uh, uh, seeking to reduce military solutions that involve the U.S. military, and it's uh, not unlikely that you will see a maintenance of uh, military training uh, teams, but a reduction in some offensive capacity in the region and a reduction of the U.S. counterterrorism programs, preferring to work with partners in the region who can do this more themselves. Uh, this does not mean the regional defense won't be a priority. Uh, indeed, it's almost uh, certain that um, uh, there will be some, uh, some work done to ensure that regional um, uh, partners have the capacity to defend themselves, although it's likely that uh, this capacity won't be to the extent that the partners themselves believe. 
So how have we seen this played out? Uh, well, in the first, in the last week, we've seen several uh, steps which seem to demonstrate that this, uh, these conditions are being uh, um, respected as policies developed. Armed shipments to the Emirates in Saudi Arabia have been placed on hold. Uh, Raytheon had already announced that it is uh, uh, seeking the sale to a major uh, re, uh, Arab country. So it shows that there is already an impact within the um, um, military commercial system in the United States. Uh, the United States has talked about supporting uh, the normalization uh, process of the Abraham Accords. That's a, that's a good thing. Uh, but you've also seen comments on the Yemen war regarding the Saudi role in that war, which I expect Riyadh would find problematic. The administration has talked about relooking at the terrorist designation of the Houthis, um, as well as restoring funding uh, and relation, diplomatic relations with the Palestinians. So the Biden team attend, appears to be uh, living up to its, its promises um, uh, as it moved forward. It's going to take some time for this process to be developed. It will take um, uh, some days, weeks for the teams to be developed, for personnel to be assigned to the various policy decisions. They're going to need uh, to go through um, extensive intelligence briefings and engagement with uh, existing government experts just to get the lay of the land before they begin the uh, what often seems interminable uh, uh, policy meetings within um, um, uh, the uh, uh, policy machine itself. So let's look at some specifics moving forward. I think it's likely that you're going to see efforts to lower tensions with Iran. You'll see that with rhetoric at first, uh, that does not mean that the rhetoric will be in Tehran's favor. Uh, indeed, thus far, Secretary Blinken has stated that although the U.S. will return, it requires Iran returning to compliance first. That's probably not what Tehran uh, wants to hear. And indeed, Iran has uh, announced uh, as of today that it has accelerated its um, uh, efforts to produce additional enriched uranium. I think you're going to see some sort of a sense of lowering tensions also with the Houthis. Uh, perhaps Hamas, perhaps others uh, in the region. Um, there will be some focus on the, the, the failed states, um, uh, Yemen, Libya, uh, Syria, uh, but that's going to involve some discussion as to how they deal with um, uh, the dominant actors. And that I think will be problematic for a variety of players, but Europe will support that. Um, the Yemen war challenge remains. Uh, it is commonly stated in the United States that we must leave forever wars, those who state that rarely add that those wars won't end simply because we are departing. They will continue and it therefore remains a priority for the United States for our values and for our interests in the region to address the, those wars. I think you're going to see a tougher um, um, or more direct or more candid, whatever language you want to use, relationship with Israel on the issue of settlements. But I'm not sure that you're going to see any significant shift in the strategic dynamic with Israel or even some of the other partners, such as Saudi Arabia or the Emirates or Bahrain, uh, simply because broader interests continue to exist. I think you're going to see a tougher posture on Turkey as well. Turkey's relation, uh, activities in the uh, Mediterranean, in the Aegean, are uh, deeply disturbing to regional energy development, diplomatic development, and are risking a conflict. At the same time, Turkey is an important member of NATO, and developing that fine line will take a bit of discussion and, and relationship engagement um, uh, with among the various actors. 
I think when people are sitting in the region as they come in, sitting in their chairs as they come in uh, to the administration, they're going to see some things that look very similar and very different. And this is also going to shape policy moving forward. Iran remains throughout the region. Yes, it has been constrained by sanctions in some cases, and it would be incorrect to say that the region is more dangerous in the last year. Uh, individuals who make such statements rarely talk about um, the, the fact that Iran's activities in Syria, uh, Yemen, um, uh, Lebanon, and Iraq in different ways continue during, uh, prior, during, and after JCPOA. So whether where it's more dangerous really depends upon the part of the region you want to uh, talk about. Um, the uh, broken states uh, continue to be broken. There's no sign of the various actors within Yemen pulling themselves together, uh, let alone uh, Libya. Uh, some modest progress uh, in, in Libya, but it's not yet successful to uh, see a path forward. And of course, Lebanon is far more fragile politically and financially. And, in, and environmentally and socially than it's ever been before. And I think Lebanon could easily become an early um, a hot spot uh, for the administration. There's been no significant progress on the Israel-Palestine issue. Uh, settlements continue. Um, um, uh, there's a lot less Palestinian influence um, um, uh, over its territory as the settlements have moved in. And of course, the fracture between Hamas and the Palestinian Authority don't seem to be going anywhere. And finally, China and Russia are moving throughout the region. But at the same time, I think those who, 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 who didn't overreact to this proved correct. Neither uh, Moscow nor Beijing is interested in a geostrategic or geopolitical role in the region. They're looking more for a geocommercial or geoeconomic role um, uh, and uh, uh, playing a, a political role only when it seems to suit the interest of, of their proxies in other areas. But here's some things that have changed and I think there are opportunities throughout all of this. There's new leadership throughout the region, and that leadership dynamic continues to change as a generation of iconic uh, Arab leaders uh, moves on. You have new leadership in Oman, you have new leadership in Iraq, you have new leadership in Saudi Arabia, you have new leadership in a variety of places, and the opportunities for engagement and ignoring the uh, uh, paradigms of, 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 of decades past have never been, never been better. You have a younger regional population which is interested in entrepreneurialism, which is interested in social dynamics that are um, very different from Arab nationalism or, or Islamic militancy in the past. And this is a tremendous opportunity for US outreach. ISIS certainly remains it's, uh, um, as, a, as a threat, uh, both in Syria, as well as in about 13 countries in Africa. But the ISIS caliphate himself is gone. And, and that represents an opportunity for a very different military footprint relationship with the Kurds, discussions with Turkey, relations with Iraq itself. The Arab Spring has settled. Um, um, the so-called Arab Spring is settled. Uh, you're not seeing threats to uh, regimes uh, as you were in the past. Uh, the normalization has been generally uh, uh, successful and, and indeed almost boringly successful between uh, the Emirates, Bahrain, uh, the Sudan, Morocco, and Israel, where immediately they began engaging on routine state-to-state -state dialogues. It's yet to be seen whether they are going to pursue this relationship to press for Palestinian interests, but I think that's, that possibility is out there as well. Uh, there are some actors who are missing. Qasem Soleimani, Abu um, Mahdi al-Mahandis, uh, 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 Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, uh, Abu Muhammad al-Masri and his daughter Miriam. Um, it's hard to argue that that's not a 
That doesn't lower the temperature in some ways for a new administration. And as they come in, I think the region is a little easier without these, without these actors, um, although I don't think anybody would, would admit that. Um, the strategic energy topography has shifted dramatically. I think it sort of it does weaken the uh, integrity and discipline of OPEC, but it does leave Saudi Arabia, the Russia, and the United States as whatever one thinks about it, the dominant actors in the international energy uh, sphere today. Uh, the COVID realities are about to uh, constrain and reshape spending dynamics throughout the region. And I think this is somewhere, again, where we can have joint uh, discussions simply because aid to um, uh, developing countries is going to be uh, more constrained. Um, and uh, 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 the financial status of countries such as Iraq, which remains very fragile, uh, or other regional countries will need, need cooperation with the United States. Um, and of course, uh, very good news. And with Dr. Mohammed on, on the screen, uh, the, the amazing Saudi modernization program continues. It's popular within the country. Uh, the investment conference, which is taking place today, is exceptional. It's just exceptional. And this, this dynamic, along with the openness and interfaith um, um, uh, uh, processes within Bahrain, um, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, I'm sorry, the United Arab Emirates uh, are offer great promise for the regime for the region uh, as a whole. Um, I would also say there are new architectures. I would close with that that need to be need to be considered. The GCC exists. Its impact needs to be considered. Um, Qatar's relationships with uh, Turkey and Iran are likely to stay, and Qatar um, continues to have a, a significant amount of wealth and uh, um, has just made a, 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 some, I think, useful comments on climate change and elsewhere. And I think you're going to look at these new dynamics of the Emirates working with Greece and Cyprus, um, the various countries of the region involved in the gas and oil initiative of the Eastern Mediterranean. So there's a lot of opportunity here. But I'll close as I began. Um, the Biden team came in with a series of, 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 of principles. They seem to be sticking to that. Uh, it's going to take them some time to pull their um, precise strategies together simply because it takes time to pull the people in the process together. Um, I don't expect the Middle East to be the first priority, uh, but I'll close by saying that your, your, your enemy always gets a vote. The adversary always gets a vote. Bad news shapes policies. And when a British prime minister was once asked what would uh, shape or change his plans in policies. He responded, events, dear boy, events. And I think some of that will take place in the Middle East. Thank you. That was fantastic. Thank you so much, Norm. And I really appreciate the fact that you highlighted the recent comments of President Biden and Secretary Blinken, because I think it's important that people really focus and pay attention to what is coming out of the administration and not try to second guess or assume uh, what they think might be going on in the administration. So with that, let's turn it over to Dave DeRoche. Dave, uh, what remarks would you have for us? Well, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm the guy who second guesses and assumes. Uh, look, it's an honor to be here. Uh, I'm, I'm very pleased. Uh, I kind of feel like I just got called up from uh, Chattanooga to the 1961 Yankees and I'm told I'm batting fifth after uh, Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle. Uh, I have a presentation here to share, so let me see if I can work that out. And uh, what I will do is... Um, uh, remind you while I'm trying to get my technology to work that my remarks do not reflect the United States government opinion. Can you see my screen? Can you see my slides? Can you see my slides? Let's see. 
Yes, yes. Oh, excellent. So what I'm going to talk about today are security aspects of Iran, the GCC, and the Biden administration. And there has been at least one major change since uh, I shift, since I prepared these slides. So uh, hopefully this will be of use to you. Um, my contact information is here. And as always, uh, I don't speak for the U.S. government, um, which uh, allows me to uh, uh, criticize and have a little bit more flexibility. So the first aspect to bear in mind is the JCPOA is, as Norman uh, identified, uh, one of the key things. It was a campaign promise of Joe Biden that he would rejoin the JCPOA. Uh, I'm not sure if he uh, meant it seriously as, you know, a day one out of the gate proposal, so much as indicating a change in tone uh, towards a more collaborative model away from the um, more confrontational model favored by Donald Trump. Um, and, and particularly, it may not even be so important for U.S.-Iranian relations as it was for U.S.-European relations. So you see standing next to uh, Zarif Federico Mogherini, who was then the EU uh, Commissioner for Foreign Affairs, uh, the JCPOA marked the first time that the EU sat at the table as the EU as a peer. And uh, I, I have argued continually and will continue to assert that um, because of this, the United States unilaterally withdrawing from the JCPOA is more than just an Iran issue. It is seen by uh, the European Union as a fundamental uh, attack on their legitimacy, that the U.S. Uh, withdrawing from the JCPOA uh, diminishes the importance of the European Union and this almost theological project of ever closer union. And so... Um, you know, marking a willingness to return to that uh, may have even bigger implications, aside from the, the challenge of getting Iran to rejoin it. The fact that it, it sort of elevates the European Union, that might be more important in overall U.S. relations. Uh, of course, the European, uh, the JCPOA was never a treaty or an executive order, as you see in this letter sent by the State Department of Mike Pompeo, who asked for a copy of it. Um, and as we saw from Senator Cotton, who is also a ranger like me, but has not served in the 75th Ranger Regiment, as I have not. Um, he sent this letter to the Iranian leadership saying, hey, uh, you know, this is not a treaty. It hasn't been ratified and a future president could withdraw from it, as indeed happened. Nevertheless, a narrative has, has evolved that the United States had a sacred agreement that we went back on. Uh, in the Arab world, the JCPOA was greeted uh, with great hostility. Uh, the sense was that we were uh, playing with somebody else's money. Uh, the Arab and Israeli money was on the table and the United States uh, was uh, you know, playing the cards. And we got what we wanted, walked away and left uh, the Arab world uh, to the tender mercies of Iran. This was exacerbated uh, by the Atlantic interview with President Obama and Jeffrey Goldberg, in which um, uh, President Obama said, basically, you guys need to get along. That made it into translation and to, into Arab public memory as you need to give up some of your security concerns to Iran. And I can tell you that I've been teaching uh, courses with Arab militaries all month. And uh, the day before yesterday, I was just asked about the Goldberg article by a general officer in an, an Arab military. So it still resonates. Um, and of course, this is how they saw it. 
They saw Iran as being on the move, acquiring uh, Arab countries uh, and duplicating their success with creating basically a untouchable enclave within the state of Lebanon with Hezbollah uh, doing that with Yemen. And the ultimate aim of this, of course, was the solidification of the Shia Crescent, uh, which ideally uh, would become a full moon uh, encircling the uh, Arab states of the GCC and Iraq uh, and preventing, reducing them to a status of subordinate to the natural leader of the Middle Eastern and Gulf World Order, which is Iran. Um, at the same time, of course, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the Trump administration was seen as uh, the, uh, the unilateral approach taken by it, um, which I would argue is mostly bluster, but that was seen as being deliberately hostile to longstanding American alliances. Uh, this was more of a concern in Europe than it was in the Middle East, uh, but it also resonated with the American population. And uh, if the if the adversary, if Iran gets a vote, uh, so literally and figuratively do the American people. And over time, this message of unilateralism, uh, and Americans primarily are concerned about Europe more than the Middle East, that did resonate. So how did the US um, unilateral actions under the Trump administration work? Well, they've been effective as intermediate outputs. That is, they have not produced the desired political change, uh, but they have been effective in producing the um, uh, economic damage, uh, the economic pain that, in theory, if sustained over a period of time, would lead to political change. Now, in general, um, people on the left uh, viewed this as just a uh, manifestation of Trump's unilateralism and, uh, you know, disagreed with the policy. But it's important to know that the same logic was approved by the left when it was applied to the apartheid regime in South Africa. So, uh, you know, there isn't an absolute thing here. And the sanctions on their own terms have succeeded. But of course, they have not yet succeeded in producing uh, regime change or regime failure in Iran, as was desired. Another action that Trump took unilaterally, as Norman mentioned, was the killing of Qasem Soleimani and Abdul Mahdi al-Mohandas. I have repeatedly argued uh, and continue to that uh, actually the death of Abdul Mahdi al-Mohandas was more significant than the death of Qasem Soleimani. Soleimani was effective in his role, but with his death, another person steps up, he'll be more or less effective. But Abdul Mahdi al-Mohandas' death signified a change in the informal rules for the U.S. And Iran, and Iran. In the past, if an Iranian proxy had managed to embed himself into the host government, uh, as we see with Hezbollah ministers in Lebanon and Abdul Mahdi al-Mohandas' role as the deputy commander of the Hashd al-Shabi, where he was able to use uh, Iraqi resources to um, pursue Iranian commands, uh, he was immune. Uh, but when he was killed, that showed that if uh, you are assessed as being an Iranian agent, regardless of your nationality or what position you've managed to uh, work yourself into, you are a target. Uh, and of course, Qasem Soleimani is no longer with us uh, as after the attack at Baghdad International Airport, uh, memorialized uh, in Iran, in Iraq uh, by um, this monument, which uh, um, shows uh, the moment of death. And... Uh, uh, his tomb, uh, or, or Abdul Mahdi al-Mohandas' tomb in Najaf remains a, um, uh, a, is developed into a site of pilgrimage for some. So that may yet prove to be a dysfunctional move. Now, Secretary Pompeo, uh, who is uh, a very intelligent man, 
who uh, approaches problems as an engineer and thus has little patience for people who uh, aren't actually seeking a solution, but rather trying to kind them out, adopted a confrontational approach with Congress, which I think uh, is now proving to um, uh, not be as effective as it had been if there'd been a second term or if uh, there'd been a slightly uh, improved tone. And what we're seeing uh, as of yesterday is a pause announced by the administration on recent weapon sales to the Gulf, I think in large part to differentiate this administration from um, the uh, administration of Donald Trump and Mike Pompeo. So first, uh, we had the sale of precision guided munitions last year, uh, 2019, which were rushed through under an emergency uh, resolution uh, you know, bypassing the congressional notification period where Congress could intervene to stop the sale. These were precision-guided munitions to Saudi Arabia and to the UAE. Um, emergency provisions had been used before, but they were used in times of war, like Desert Storm. And so um, to do this for, um, you know, in probably for operations in Yemen at a time when that was controversial, that was seen uh, widely as bad faith by the Trump administration. Uh, and it was seen not necessarily as a partisan issue, but more as an issue of the executive branch in, uh, stepping on the prerogatives of the legislative branch. And that never goes well. It's never welcomed. Then later on, uh, as uh, corollary to the Abraham Accords, we saw the approval of the Joint Strike Fighter uh, and of the MQ-9 armed drone to the UAE. Uh, this was, there was a notification period to Congress, but there normally is a open-ended and quite frankly dysfunctional period of informal negotiations, which the party in power always seeks to restrict. I recall a memo from Hillary Clinton when she was Secretary of State trying to curtail the informal notification process. Uh, in this instance, there was a cursory informal notification and a formal notification which occurred uh, after the election uh, be, while, you know, over the holidays uh, that again, uh, in large part because of the bad faith over the previous precision guided munitions sale, I think was viewed by many in Congress, regardless of party, as rushing the process and kind of as exercise of bad faith. So because of that, the pause or hold or review, whatever euphemism you want to use on these weapons uh, announced by Secretary of State Blinken yesterday, I think uh, is welcoming Congress, but obviously not welcoming the region. So what are the region's concerns? The first is that even under the JCPOA, Iran continued to develop and expand its ballistic missile capacity. It has a formidable arsenal of missiles. Uh, and, uh, you know, Iran is not a leader in basic scientific research. It doesn't have really a science culture, but it has a very good engineering culture. And so um, it continually takes uh, designs that others invent, and it basically uh, improves them in numerous ways. So the workhorse of the Iranian missile fleet is the second one here, the Fatah 110, uh, relatively short range, but long range enough to hit uh, most of the GCC states and uh, targets in uh, Saudi Arabia's eastern province, which is where most of the oil infrastructure is. Um, 
Uh, this is based off of a SCUD model, uh, but Iran has uh, improved it by uh, working on the engines, converting them to solid engines in some instances, uh, changing the body from steel to aluminum, and there are reports that they're working now on the composite body, which makes it lighter, allows for range. And then, of course, the warheads are getting more and more accurate as improvements in electronics uh, developed elsewhere for things like cellular phones are applied to missile technology. Um, uh, this is one of the new warheads seen on a uh, Iranian missile, and its design indicates that it is a more accurate missile, um, that the warhead is able to hit within meters rather than hundreds of meters. Uh, this was an attack carried out two years ago on a Daesh compound in western Syria. Uh, the Iranians said they launched the missile from Iran. I, I don't think that's true. I think that they launched it from um, uh, Iranian-controlled territory in Iraq, uh, but as you can see, it had a very accurate battlefield effect, and this increased accuracy is probably uh, the greatest concern that the Arab states and not coincidentally Israel have with the Iranian uh, arsenal and with Iran's conduct uh, since the JCPOA was signed. And uh, if you look at uh, Israeli airstrikes that have been conducted in Lebanon and Syria uh, and follow the attribution, a large percentage of them are against uh, transfers of precision-guided missiles. Uh, of course, we've seen precision attacks on the Abcake refinery. This is the, uh, an aerial photograph of the Abcake refinery with the damage assessment. The areas on the left uh, that look kind of dark and that have smoke coming out from them were hit by cruise missiles. The, the spheroids to the right, those three spheroids, were hit by drones, armed Delta wing drones, uh, and they were hit with a great degree of accuracy. The spheroids were mostly hit in the same spot within meters of each other. So a small warhead, small throw weight, small range, all of that can be overcome with increased accuracy. Uh, and Iran has developed that since the JCPOA was signed. Second area of concern is naval disruption. And uh, I point this out historically to uh, emphasize that the U.S. Navy has not paid emphasis to mine warfare as it should. These, this is major damage sustained to U.S. ships in combat since the Korean War. And as you can see, uh, the number of ships damaged or lost to mines exceeds the number of ships lost to all other causes combined, to include the combined torpedo and airplane attack on the USS Liberty by Israeli forces in the 67 war. So um, uh, in spite of that, uh, it seems that the Navy focuses uh, a disproportionate amount of its research development and fielding efforts on air systems and on missile systems, whereas the low-tech, low-cost mines, uh, which Iran has used in the past, remain uh, probably a greater threat. Um, this is the BW Rhine, which was attacked in Jeddah Harbor uh, recently. It's a civilian ship. We're not sure if Iran did it or if there's some other uh, means there, but what it shows is that these slow, uh, you know, lumbering, uh, difficult to defend tankers uh, upon which the economic lifeblood of the GCC states depends remains uh, a target, uh, an attractive target for um, uh, warfare. And uh, this is a, an Iranian uh, compiled uh, remote control boat, which uh, was captured in Yemen. Several of these have been captured. Uh, the, the guidance computer you see at the bottom here, uh, it takes a picture whenever it's turned on. They're actually pictures of Revolutionary Guard technicians in uniform. Uh, you know, that was the initial picture taken on one of these. It also geolocates uh, the exact location of the factory in Tehran. So this has been used in the past against the Saudi ship Medina 
uh, causes great action and something like it might have been used against the VW Rhine. Again, we don't know, but there have been attacks on shipping uh, up and down the Red Sea coast. Of course, the use of limpet mines uh, off the Strait of Hormuz. This was against the uh, uh, Kokura Courageous, which was um, part of the naval attacks where several ships were um, uh, attacked above the waterline, and it, it appears that the, the aim of this was to uh, damage the ships above the waterline, then claim, oh, the ship is in distress, move in, and then seize the ship and hold it uh, pending negotiations. As we've seen with this ship, the Hongkuk Kemi, which was recently taken into custody in international waters by the Revolutionary Guard Navy, you see the Revolutionary Guard Navy escort ships here, held uh, under charges of pol causing pollution in the Persian Gulf. Uh, and of course, when um, the Koreans uh, said, well, wait a minute, you're holding this hostage, um, the immediate response is, well, you're holding $7 billion of our money hostage pursuant to US sanctions. Pretty clear quid pro quo there. So the region is concerned about that and they have a right to be. Then of course, you have the unabated raising of proxy forces, Hezbollah in the upper left, which continues to gather strength, which in spite of the popular protests in Lebanon, which were put down in spite of the sanctions leveraged against uh, now non-Hezbollah politicians in the Lebanese state who have cooperated again with Hezbollah, um, still maintains its status as an autonomous enclave uh, within and arguably undermine the Lebanese state. And then at the bottom, uh, the Iraqi Hashdashabi, which uh, operate across the spectrum of warfare, which uh, disregard uh, commands from lawfully constituted um, civil authority and even military authority in Iraq and have in one instance encircled the Iraqi prime minister's house uh, to show their power. Um, this remains of concern to everybody. Now, what are the Arab concerns in the United States? Well, there's a couple. The first concern is that uh, the Biden administration will be a third term of the Barack Obama administration, which they regard with suspicion primarily because of the conclusion of the JCPOA, which as both speakers have noted, was done without consultation with the Arab states and was presented as a fait accompli. Um, the second is they're worried about um, the, in, in the Arab view, precipitous abandonment of longtime allies uh, in the Arab Spring. And that this, these actions, uh, which I honestly felt at the time was more an idea that there was this new zeitgeist and that we have to adjust our thinking to the winds of change. But uh, it, it was seen within the region as indicating a desire to um, reconstitute the regime, or at least welcoming a reconstitution of the regime uh, and overthrowing uh, various regi Arab regimes in there. And it's telling that I heard um, senior uh, Arab state leaders who are not known for speaking in English very often, but they use this exact term in English, through Mubarak under the bus. And then finally, they're concerned about the um, presence and the persistence of some people uh, in the Biden administration who are um, closely associated with the JCPOA and the idea that they may resurface in the Biden administration carrying out policies which in their view are hostile to the Arab states. And this is focused on Rob Malley, uh, rightly or wrongly. Um, I've heard, um, uh, all kinds of allegations made against him uh, to include, uh, there's been some historical research here, you know, notification that his father, uh, an Arab official mentioned to me, you're aware, of course, his father was one of the founders of the Egyptian Communist Party. Uh, normally, we don't get that historical with people, but it is welcomed by Code Pink. Uh, I include that just because 
uh, longstanding friends of the National Council, of whom I consider my one, will um, remember that the president of Code Pink uh, disrupted uh, the conference two years ago. So, um, you know, if the friend of if the uh, friend of our friend is our friend and the enemy of our friend is our you know our enemy. Um, you know, this is the logic being employed by the Arab states. And I, I predict that uh, he in particular will remain a focus of concern for our partners in the region. So I'm sorry, I've covered a lot of material very quickly, but I hope you find it useful. And I welcome your questions. Again, emphasizing that I don't speak for the US government. Yeah, thank you so much, Dave. I appreciate that. We only have a few minutes left and uh, we, we want to be able to get at least one or two questions in. But maybe what I can do is I can just ask one or two quick questions and whoever feels like jumping in can jump in and then we'll wrap it up and turn it right back to Dr. Anthony. Uh, the first question I have is, what does sectarianism mean for the region today? Because if we go back five or 10 years ago, we witnessed waves of violence sparked by Sunni extremists uh, response from the Shia militias, particularly in Iraq and Syria. And it was a major issue as to how much Salafi-inspired ideas were transforming the ideological landscape, et cetera. Many of you will remember this. We had many conferences on this at the time. What I'm asking is, where's the region today? Does sectarianism still drive violence in the region today? Uh, and do tensions between Gulf, uh, in the Gulf between Iran and its Arab neighbors contribute to that tension, to that uh, sectarian tension? Thanks. If anyone would like to jump in on that. Uh, yes, I might. Go ahead, uh, Dr. Salami, if you want. Yeah, yeah. Very, uh, very quickly. Uh, sectarian, the religion and sectarianism is used for political agenda. This is not the main driver of the, of the tension in the region. Iran has been a Shia, for example, for 15 uh, like since 1501, like more than five, five, century, uh, five centuries. Uh, and we could coexist with Iran as a Shia state. And before 1979, the question was in the region wasn't even, uh, you know, uh, uh, ask if you are Shia or Sunni, what is your belief? Neighbors can coexist with each other. Uh, that examples can be seen in Kuwait, Bahrain, uh, Saudi Arabia, Eastern Prophet of Saudi Arabia, Yemen, and other places. It is after 1979, the political Islam, I would say, that used sectarianism for political agenda. So if there is uh, a way out of this problem and this tension with Iran, nobody will use sectarianism. And it is from the Iranian side more because it's the only way through which Iran could, can interfere in the other countries, regional at least, regional countries affairs using the minorities for political agenda and presents itself as the protector or the defender of, of Shia, while it's the Shia in Iran and, and Azerbaijan are suffering, although the, the uh, Iran itself is humiliating Shia in, in, in Khuzestan or Arabistan, not because they are Shia, but because they are Arabs. So it is, it's the political agenda, but it's the tools, it's the easiest tool. And it's, if, to, to say the problem, it's historical and since 1400 uh, years, it, between Arabs and Iranians, that they cannot coexist with each other because of the differences in religion, Sunni and Shia. It is just too easy uh, to bring an easy answer for difficult questions. So it is the political agenda, the project, the expansionist project that uses the, the sectarianism for uh, achieving their goals. Thank you. That's that's wonderful, Dr. Salami. Maybe if I could ask Norm or, or Dave, if you had 
just one minute with uh, President Biden or with Secretary Blinken, what advice would you give them? What would be your key takeaway as to how to manage Iran? I'd, I'd say um, a, a sort of Fulbright program. I would, I would offer scholarships uh, unilaterally. It'd be sort of an educational human capital uh, Marshall plan. And uh, I honestly don't think that the Iranians would accept it because they think that people were being recruited for intelligence agencies. But I think it would be an act of good faith. And I think that the Iranian people who really respect education in general and respect Western education, I think they would appreciate that. And that would set a great tone. And it probably wouldn't cost anything. And Norm, what would be your recommendations? The Biden administration has spoken eloquently on its uh, uh, values standards, and I suggest they just apply those values standards to the Iran issue. How we address multilateralism must include the Arab region and the Israelis. This must be a bipartisan issue. Uh, partisanship on foreign policy is intensely corrosive. So I think that the Biden administration's should approach should be to live up to the eloquent um, uh, words that brought it to uh, that brought it to power, and that is multilateralism, uh, uh, pushing back on bullies and aggressors, and uh, bipartisanship without engaging in without. And there are many ways to do this without engaging uh, in a traditional con conventional conflict. Okay, and with that, I'd like to turn it back to Dr. Anthony if he has any concluding remarks that he'd like to offer. Uh, Dr. Anthony? Um, I think it was quite uh, appropriate that uh, Mohammed Salami uh, pointed out that the sectarian focus can be misleading and dis distractive. Uh, what is more at issue here are strategic matters. And uh, Saudi Arabia has shown, as others have shown, that the strategic issues trump the sectarian ones. Saudi Arabia was the lead uh, country uh, trying to uh, make an agreement with Lebanon in the Taif Accords uh, to change the power balance in Lebanon uh, to uh, grant uh, more uh, position and privilege and power uh, to the, the Shia there. It, it did the same thing in Yemen. Uh, Yemen is uh, known for its uh, Shia uh, uh, sectarianism, uh, but Saudi Arabia has, has viewed uh, Yemen from more from a strategic perspective than that. It supported the royalists, Zaidi Shia, uh, throughout the Yemen civil war, uh, but came to terms uh, with the Republican government in uh, Yemen. Uh, and was able to surmount uh, its support for the royalists and come to a peaceful accord there. Uh, likewise, in its uh, relationships uh, with Iraq, which is now uh, headed by uh, Shia leaders, uh, Saudi Arabia's uh, efforts to have a rapprochement with uh, Iraq uh, surmount uh, the sectarian aspect. And for many years, up until 1979, there were accords between Shia, Iran, and Sunni, Saudi Arabia, and the GCC countries. The point being here uh, that one cannot say uh, that can uh, not be a reversion to the usness 
there instead of the we versus the they and us versus the them. Uh, COVID-19 alone uh, shows uh, that there are no borders with regard to uh, these kinds of global concerns and issues and challenges. Uh, that too provides a forum for us as, to build on uh, uh, David DeRoche's approach on the uh, educational e exchanges there. These possibilities exist, but it takes leadership. And the last four years of leadership have not necessarily proven very productive. We have a chance now. We have a, a head of state uh, that is no stranger to foreign affairs, having been on the Foreign Relations Committee and having visited the region extensively. And the team that he has gathered is also seasoned and experienced and benefiting from the input of those that we've been blessed to hear uh, this morning. So the National Council is grateful uh, to the three and to you, Josh, for being the moderator and pulling all of these threads together. Uh, we look forward to uh, the next time uh, when we will attempt to have a cerebral massage that will be beneficial to, to all. Thank you.